Rebecca McKinnon. Rebecca began her career as a journalist and basically got disgusted with journalism, I think. That's fair to say. Got, got frustrated with the organization I was working <laughs> She told me that, uh, I, I'm going to say it whether she will. Let's see, go ahead. All right. That uh, when she was working for CNN in China, they told her that they needed to have her, her articles had too much information in them. I needed to cover my region more like a tourist. She knew too much. <laughs> this is the oy vey moment. Anyway, she, um, Rebecca, has made the, she was always very fascinated by digital technology and she has used her, her journalistic uh, skills and also her very, very uh, interesting mind to engage issues of uh, digital technology, to be a founder, for instance, of uh, Global Voices Online, which is one of the one of the sites. It now seems like it's sort of a long time ago, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. that, uh, that, that, was, that the whole concept of using the web to connect people in an international way uh, was a new thought, and Rebecca was a real pioneer of that. Her new book, her first book and new book, Consent of the network uh, is the reason she is here with us today. Uh, she is now a fellow, currently a senior fellow at the New American Foundation. Rebecca, we're very glad to have you. Thank you so much, Alex. And you know, Shorenstein Center really played a critical role in, you know, how I got to this point. I mean, if it hadn't been for the, the Shorenstein Center and my fellowship here and the ability to sort of get out of the journalistic hamster wheel for a little while so that I could really, you know, play around with blogging, kind of really experiment with things, have a chance, the headspace to think about where things were going, talk to a broader range of people, really question what was going on, uh, experiment. Um, you know, if I hadn't had that opportunity, I, I don't think I'd... You know, I don't think this book would have existed or that, you know, Global Voices and all the other work, you know, it, it was really, that fellowship was so critical in setting me down the, the path I ended up going down, so. We're proud uh, if we had a role. Yeah, well, it's, it's just it's just really wonderful, I think, for, for to have this type of fellowship in existence that really enables journalists who've had a certain amount of experience to, to really think about, okay, how do I take what I know and do something more creative or different or, or think outside the box and, and try and make a more original contribution in some way. So it's really valuable and uh, uh, wonderful thing. Um, so I just wanted to make sure everybody's aware of, of how, how important this, this all fellowship take was. Yes. Take note. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if possible. They, they really make a, a huge impact. Um, but so, so this book, you know, even though there's internet in the title, it's not a technical book. It's, it's a book that's really written for anybody who is interested in global politics, in, you know, civil liberties, in, in human rights, in the future of democracy in the 21st century and who has ever used the internet and who has ever used a, a mobile phone. Uh, it's not written uh, from some technical perspective and it, it's really meant to be an overview. Um, and so for the people who are super technical experts like Susan and a few others in the room, there are things in the book that uh, 
are, are somewhat familiar, but what I'm trying to do is put things into a, a, a broader context, um, and, and, and a broader you know, geopolitical context as well, and how the technology and the geopolitics and the politics are interacting with, with one another. And so the, the premise of the book really is, relates and is a little bit of a response to the euphoria that we've seen around the Arab Spring and around other events that, you know, the internet is just kind of a liberating force, just naturally. And the point of the book is, is not that, okay, you know, you can't use the internet for activism. Obviously you can. Obviously the internet is enabling uh, a lot of things that weren't possible before, is enabling uh, individuals to speak truth to power, is enabling people who feel that their communities are ignored, their countries are ignored, their nations are ignored, to kind of take coverage of, of their issue, their place, into their own hands and get information out that used to have to go through pro professional gatekeepers, which is why I started Global Voices, because there was this community of people around the world who were blogging and talking about things that weren't getting covered very well, and we wanted to find a way to really amplify uh, these voices um, of people who were trying to speak out and able to use the internet to do that and had it not been for the internet they would have been isolated and unable to to get their perspectives heard so the internet is very important but there's there's another side which is that what you can do on the internet today um, the fact that it's decentralized the fact that you can type in you know, CNN.com and get the same website from anywhere on earth unless you're in a country where they block things. Um, the fact that you can create a website and add it to the network without permission. The fact that you can create a new device and connect it to the network without somebody's central permission. The extent to which you can be anonymous or secure at all. Um, all of these things, you know, the nature of the internet today is, is not some some result of some force of nature. It's the result of specific choices that software programmers, engineers, business managers, uh, lawyers, regulators have been making over the course of the last several decades. And so what it becomes in the future, how it evolves, is also not the result of some natural evolution. It depends on the decisions that everybody involved with the network is making. Um, and so the internet can evolve in a way in the future that remains compatible with democracy and dissent or, and democratic discourse, or it can evolve in a manner that becomes increasingly incompatible with dissent, discourse, uh, and democratic society and civil liberties. And which way it goes is not some kind of inevitable, inexorable, technological force. It's, all, it's up to all of us, you know, not just those of us who are computer geeks, but those of us who are voters, those of us who are consumers, those of us who are investors, those of us who are journalists, citizens with a voice. It depends on all of us to shape this internet in the direction we want it to take. Um, and just to talk about a few kind of examples and, and issues that I raise in the book, and I know we want to leave a lot of time for conversation and discussion. Of course, when I was writing the book, the Arab Spring happened, so of course I ended up having to retool it a little bit to 
um, incorporate the, the events of the Arab Spring and, and some of the lessons we've learned. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about uh, the role that the internet played in the activism in Tunisia, in Egypt, around the Middle East and North Africa, and since then, you know, in, in Russia, Occupy Wall Street, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and in Egypt and Tunisia, you've seen a couple dictators fall um, as a result of activism, which includes not only online activism, but certainly that being a, a large component. Um, it's a lot less clear the extent to which the internet is going to enable the people of Tunisia and Egypt to build sustainable, healthy, and successful democracies. That's much less clear. And there are a number of open questions that I think bring lessons that go well beyond these countries and, and their region. Um, in Egypt, two months after Mubarak stepped down, a number of activists managed to break into the state security headquarters outside of Cairo. And uh, I actually write about this early on in, the, in chapter one of the book, um, or in the introduction, I guess, um, where I, I happened to be online when a bunch of Egyptian activists I happened to know and I happened to be following on Twitter were going into the state security headquarters and tweeting in real time, you know, I just entered the room in which I was tortured two years ago. Um, or, you know, I'm finding some files of, of this and that and so and so, and I'm in this room and there's a bunch of shredded documents, and people were posting pictures, of course, of what they were finding in real time, posting clips of video onto the, onto the internet, which is, is real testimony, of course, to the force of the internet, that people are kind of self-reporting something like this. But uh, people also found uh, files. Um, some people found their own files, or files of people they knew. Um, and in these files were reams and reams of transcripts of people's email exchanges, uh, transcripts of their cell phone text message exchanges, um, logs of you know, the location of their cell phone as they moved around the city and the country. Um, information captured from their Skype chats, which they thought were secure, but it turns out were not so secure. Um, information that had been captured as it was being transmitted across their internet connection uh, by whoever was controlling their internet service provider. Uh, and uh, some activists also found contracts that had been sent by Western technology companies to the Egyptian state security office uh, for deep packet inspection technology, as it's known, uh, which is used, you know, it was invented primarily for network security purposes, you know, to help you defend against attacks, cyber attacks that we talk a lot about in this country, but it's also very useful for surveillance and for capturing very detailed, finely grained information about what people are doing on networks that you know, helps you fight crime, but also helps you fight dissent. Um, and so, of course, uh, activists in Egypt today, one year later, uh, would be naive to think that this technology is not continuing to be deployed. And as we've seen in Egypt, the transition is difficult. Uh, civil society groups are being threatened, uh, activists 
have recently been arrested for their political activities or because of the funds they've been getting from overseas and so on. It's a very difficult time. Um, and one of the lessons of this is that while yes, people have used the internet to organize and overthrow and kind of say no to one dictator, the people who control the networks, who have power over the networks, sort of have this default advantage that they can see what everybody's doing and nobody's holding, able to hold them accountable for how they abuse their surveillance power, which since they're abusing a lot of other powers, we can assume they are doing. Um, with with uh, telecommunications and internet networks. And so this whole question as Egypt is trying to form sort of a new country, um, uh, you have not only the, the kind of question of political institutions and constitutional questions, but also you have really the way in which networks are structured and to what extent they're neutral and to what extent they favor whoever <coughs> happens to control you know, the administrative side of the government, you know, how is that going to play out in, in terms of the power balance in the country and the ability of people to conduct meaningful dissent? There's a similar issue in Tunisia, or a related issue in Tunisia, which has, of course, been having a much more peaceful transition or, or, or more, uh, a less troubling transition thus far, um, where, um, in the fall of this of last year, they elected a constituent assembly. Actually, quite a number of, of candidates who were elected ran on a pro-censorship platform. Um, you know, a conservative Islamic society shouldn't allow obscenity on the internet. Therefore, it should be censored, um, and also on television and, and other media. Um, and there was an attempt to reinstate censorship that happened last summer um, on, on Tunisia's networks and uh, a range of, net, of websites, mainly kind of ones deemed to be obscene, were blocked, not, not political ones as they had been under the Ben Ali regime. But uh, activists were very concerned that, well, if you, if you reinstate these mechanisms, how do you prevent them from being abused? How do you prevent mission creep? Who's defining what is obscene? Um, how do you ensure that that definition of obscenity doesn't spill over into artistic speech, political speech, etc.? Um, and so this dispute ended up going all the way up to, uh, to Tunisia's high court, which ruled um, about a month ago that actually the this, this censorship could not happen in, in the way that the transitional government was, was trying to institute it because of these concerns. So that was a victory on the part of the, the pro-democracy activists. But the issue continues, and, and they're, it, you know, the, given the, the makeup of, of the constituent assembly um, and the nature of politics in Tunisia as it <coughs> continues to emerge, um, there's a real question of what happens when democratically elected politicians are calling for censorship? And then what do you do to ensure that, that those censorship mechanisms that get put in place, even if it's meant to be for a narrow purpose, don't get abused by whoever won the last election for much broader purposes? And how do you hold the abuse accountable? Um, and the head of the uh, Tunisian uh, internet agency, a guy named Moez Chakchuk, has been talking about how he wants to set up his internet agency and sort of the internet infrastructure 
in Tunisia in a way that's transparent and neutral so that it won't be biased um, towards whoever happens to be running the government at the time and that it will facilitate democratic discourse and be a place where dissent is possible and so on. And so, so in a way it's again sort of a constitutional issue in that not only do you need to have a constitutional and political structure that that in, involves checks and balances on abuse of power and, and so on, and that where there's due process and, and whatnot. But it's also a question now with with these transitional nations, where how do you ensure that your networks also contain enough checks and balances and accountability that the information networks cannot be abused or do not by default favor whoever won the last election. Um, and what's interesting is that the Tunisians kind of look around around the world for, for models. So how do we get the right balance? Um, you know, how do other democracies deal with the question of internet censorship? And how do other democracies ensure that those mechanisms don't get abused uh, and that there isn't mission growth? And how do other democracies deal with the issue that you have to have some surveillance for law enforcement purposes but how do you ensure that the surveillance mechanisms and capabilities and the relationship between government and the companies running the networks doesn't get abused? And how do they ensure that when abuse happens, somebody's held accountable and that the power is constrained, the abuse of power is constrained through these networks? They look around and they're seeing a lot of arguments throughout the democratic world and not a lot of solutions. And so the point being, you know, and, and if you look at the, the debates going on in this country right now, in January we had a big fight over this legislation called Stop Online Piracy Act, or SOPA. It was meant to deal with a narrow problem of protecting intellectual property online. It wasn't meant to deal with political speech or other things. But the solutions being advocated uh, involved a national level internet filtering system that would block infringing websites um, and also involve placing greater liability on internet companies and anybody running an internet platform um, over the activities of their users, um, which meant that the companies were going to have to basically monitor their users and proactively censor their users much more aggressively to protect infringing, to, to prevent infringing behavior from happening on, on the websites. And so you know, this is kind of meant to deal with a narrow issue of copyright, but the problem is, are you putting mechanisms in place that could end up being abused, and who's defining infringing, and is there sufficient uh, guard against the, the, the extra powers being placed, or the extra liabilities being placed um, on companies and those running the networks um, to prevent abuse against speech that should be protected? political speech and you know civil liberties communities in this country felt that the answer was no that there was there there were too many kind of gaping holes that could enable abuse um, lack of due process and so on and this was one reason why uh, also because a lot of internet companies felt that it was not going to be good for their business model that um, the legislation was defeated but the point being is that you know in a democratically elected country, you have constituencies calling for solutions to problems that emerge on the internet, and how do you ensure that those solutions don't end up having collateral damage on civil liberties 
and other rights, and how do you ensure that the abuse of power is properly constrained and held accountable on digital networks? We have a similar argument going on around some cybersecurity cyber legislation that's been proposed in Congress. Um, the argument is made that the executive branch needs much easier access to privately run uh, networks um, in order to help coordinate responses and protect against cyber attacks. And so it's a national security issue. And it's not to say that there isn't a real threat and so on, but the question is, if we proceed in that way that has been proposed, is there sufficient constraint against abuse of these mechanisms and arrangements against unpopular speech, against minority speech, against dissent? Is there sufficient constraint against executive branch and bureaucracies abusing their power? And the civil liberties community's answer is no. Um, there isn't, and we have a problem. So we have a lot of debates, and I'm not equating the United States with you know authoritarian countries, but what I'm saying is that we we don't have good answers to this question of how do you constrain against the abuse of power in digital networks, and how, how do you set up kind of checks and balances within the network and ensure sufficient due process, ensure sufficient transparency and accountability. And I argue in the book that unless democracies do a better job of figuring this out, um, the potential of the internet to be used as a force for change and liberation elsewhere around the world is going to be greatly diminished over time. Um, so that's kind of one point. I also talk in the book about China as exhibit A really for how an authoritarian regime survives mm -hmm. the internet despite kind of all the assumptions that people made to the contrary early on. And the Chinese Communist Party survives in the internet age not just thanks to what we call the Great Firewall of China that blocks a lot of overseas websites, but because the government has managed to co-opt the private sector rather thoroughly. And so actually most of the censorship and surveillance in China is being done by Chinese companies that are running you know, Chinese versions of social networking sites, Chinese search engines, Chinese chat engines, you know, ISPs, mobile phone companies. Most of the censorship and surveillance is actually delegated to the private sector to conduct. Why? Because they're held liable. And, you know, it's, it's called in Western parlance intermediary liability. They're held responsible for all infringing behavior <coughs> committed by, um, uh, by citizens of that country on these networks. And of course, crime is defined very broadly in China. And, and so, so these companies all have to set up entire departments of people who police not only for copyright violation and porn, but also for political activity and share information very closely with the authorities and, and are expected to do this. And if they don't do this, um, there are consequences for their business in a, in a regulatory sense um, in China. And some companies get shut down when they're not doing a good enough job at policing the networks. Um, so China is kind of a cautionary tale for what happens when you get sort of what I call an unholy alliance between unaccountable government and unaccountable companies. Um, and that this can really serve as an extension, an opaque extension of power by whoever happens to be running the administrative branch of, of a government at any particular point in time. 
And so they're kind of at the extreme. Um, and as we think about the relationship between government and companies and the extent to which kind of policing functions around the world are increasingly being delegated to private networks um, because the government doesn't want to deal with it or various other political reasons, we need to be concerned uh, about this. Um, the other part of the book, I, I have a section of the book that's called The Sovereigns of Cyberspace that deals with companies and the fact that as increasingly everything we do in our lives depends increasingly on the internet, on various platforms that run on the internet, on various networked mobile devices. They're all owned, operated, and created by private companies. Um, and if these companies are making their decisions about what you can and cannot do, and how your identity is manifested, and how information is collected about you, and how it's shared, and with whom, if their decisions are being made primarily for commercial purposes, and if they're not also considering what impact this is having on people's political rights and liberties, the consequences can be quite negative, despite the fact that some of these platforms are being used, of course, for political organizing and liber liberating um, functions. But you know, if you take, say, Facebook, for example, um, Facebook has made a number of decisions over time about its privacy policies that have made a lot of sense when it comes to their commercial operations, but have been quite harmful to activists. And one example was in late 2009 when suddenly they changed their default settings. It used to be that all of your friends and your friends network were private by default, could not be seen publicly. And then suddenly they changed the settings so that everybody could see who your friends were by default. Um, this was considered commercially a very good thing to do, but if you're an Iranian activist um, and you've been using the internet to sort of inform the world about what happened with the, the uh, uh, you know, the protests and, and you're trying to stay out of jail and you don't want your friends to go to jail and suddenly your friends all get exposed, that's, that's a serious problem. You know, people in Iran get tortured for their Facebook password. Um, also, Facebook's um, policy on, on identity they require that you use your real name. If you don't use your real name, it's a violation of terms of service. Now, there's plenty of people on Facebook who aren't using their real name, but if you're politically very active on Facebook, um, it's likely you're going to have enemies. It's likely that somebody's going to report you for not using your real name as a terms of service violation, and it's quite common that activists have their accounts disabled at critical times because somebody reports them for violating terms of service because they didn't want to use their real name because they didn't want to end up in jail. Um, and so these kinds of decisions, this is just one example of many of the kinds of decisions that these, these uh, companies make that are good for themselves commercially but can have really negative human rights consequences. Um, and it's why I argue in the book that just as we expect that companies um, have responsibilities toward the environment. They have responsibilities towards the rights of their workers and, and the, the rights of the communities in, in which they exist. Um, it didn't used to be that they accepted they have, had these responsibilities. It, it, it didn't used to be that society imposed costs on companies for not accepting these responsibilities. And things are far from perfect now, but it, you know, there are now costs on businesses that do not accept their environmental responsibilities or their labor responsibilities um, and so forth. 
And I think we've reached a point where companies must also recognize that they have responsibility toward our broader civil liberties and, and political future. And if they, if, if we want to have a world in which the internet is compatible with democracy, the companies have a responsibility for accepting that they have power over that and, and therefore their decisions matter. Their decisions matter for people's life and death. Their, 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 their decisions matter for the kinds of societies people are able to have and the relationship that people have with their governments and the kinds of rights they're able to obtain and preserve vis-a-vis -vis their governments. Um, and the companies have, have a responsibility um, on free expression and privacy, particularly as pertains to surveillance. Um, you know, every much as they have a responsibility towards environment, labor, and other things. And so I, I kind of end the book with a, with, with a really a call to action, which is that you know, just as we didn't get companies to, do, to even begin to do the right thing or governments to begin to enact the right kinds of policies and laws without a broad global environmental labor human rights movements, we're not going to get the internet we want without broad movements of the same strength, breadth, uh, and depth that we have in the environmental movement, the labor movement, the global human rights movement. Um, and there are a lot of uh, experts like Susan Crawford here and, and you know specialized activist groups who've been active on these issues for a long time. But unless the public gets involved, unless people start exercising their power as consumers, as users, as voters, as people with opinions that speak out, unless journalists start covering the internet as a politically contested space and not just as a fun gadget, um, <coughs> you know, as, and, and, until people really start viewing themselves as citizens of the internet and not just users of the internet, it's going to be hard to really move the dial <coughs> in terms of ensuring that we're going to have the internet evolve in the direction that's really compatible with the civil liberties values that we cherish, uh, the rights that we're fighting to improve on every day in this country, and that people are risking their lives for around the world. And it's just not going to automatically happen. Um, that just as with you know, any bit of progress you've seen in the physical world, in real life, as internet people like to say, has been the result of constant, let's say, struggle, you know? And, the, and journalism has played a huge role in informing the public <coughs> and enabling people to understand what the problems are and what they can do and sort of where, where the levers of power are. Um, you know, since, since we're at Shorenstein Center, um, I would end with that I think as journalists, we also need to do a better job of covering the internet as a politically contested space and helping the public understand how power is being exercised across our digital networks, how power is being exercised on people's digital lives, both by companies and by government and by all these, any, anybody who can wield power on the internet, and what our levers are for, for dealing with it, for protecting ourselves, for, for pushing back. Who's doing what? You know, who is pushing back? so people know what they can do, what they can support. Um, I think so far the, the, 
you know, you can go to very specialized information sources to find out about all this stuff. But it's, it's very hard to follow these issues in the mainstream press because it's not, it doesn't fall within conventional beats that, that news organizations mm -hmm. kind of set up with their coverage. Um, but I, I think it's really important um, that we start covering this stuff better so that people can hold, understand how, how power is being exercised, how and when it's being abused, and what we can do about it, uh, how we can constrain the abuse of power, how we hold people accountable. Um, and, and I don't think the public is getting sufficient information on that to, to really even know how to act or respond or what to think. I think at the moment we're kind of at a spot that was similar to the early days, I think, before the environment environmental movement really got going where people felt it was just kind of hopeless, you know, and this is just kind of how it is. Um, there was more effort to inform the public and you know, come up with ways to push back, and I think we we need to get there now. So I'll stop talking. <coughs> Let me make a quick comment and, and question. First, I completely agree with what you've said, both in the issues that you've raised and the importance of treating these <coughs> these issues in ways that they don't seem to be able to be treated in the mainstream press in a traditional way. And um, that's, a, that's a big problem. My sense, <clears throat> we had a, a month or so ago when the sober thing was happening, Susan and some others, and Lika uh, and others were here were um, engaged by me to discuss the political implications of what happened, the political implications of, of the web rising up, mm -hmm. which it really did, which yeah. is what churned that legislation around. And it was the web in the sense that it was the companies like Google and Wikipedia. But it was also an awful lot of people, people who were simply found of themselves as citizens of the web, the way you described. And it seems to me that the real, the hope, if there is genuine hope, and I believe there is, that you can, that you can mount a counterweight to the power of governments and others who would control and exploit it. It is in that, it lies in that, fact that the web is this network of people who really value yeah. this kind of Absolutely. freedom mm -hmm. and can therefore, at least hypothetically, have the leverage to especially put pressure on the companies. Would you agree with that, or what do yeah. you think? Well, I, I think there's, uh, absolutely, I think the, the, the uprising against SOPA, as, as some people describe it, really shows that people can kind of, kind of take matters into their own hands and, and make a real difference. And that using network tools and platforms is absolutely the, the, the key to doing this uh, and the key to organizing. And, and I agree, you know, people can direct this towards companies as well. Um, so far, people haven't been very organized in, in, in sort of taking their activism to companies. Um, you know, I, I, which, which is interesting, you know, that, that it hasn't been very systematic or organized. There's been more systematic and organized activism when it comes to laws and government policy, really. Um, and sometimes you'll see, like, kind of online petitions telling Google to do this or not do that, or, you know, like, Facebook users will create a page, you know, protesting privacy policies or protesting the timeline or something, and Facebook will pay attention maybe or not maybe or you know Google is you know with Google Plus which is their new social network people 
started to use Google Plus to protest against that company's identity policies and actually got the policies changed a little bit. But it was interesting, I had a conversation with some people at Google about that process and they found that, you know, with people just sort of posting comments in a thread on the social network, it's really kind of hard to absorb and engage and kind of know what to do with. And I think we need to think about maybe more systematic structures or kind of innovations in a way of how to take kind of the grassroots reactions and feedback that are happening around company policies and practices and engage with the companies in a way that the companies will kind of take seriously and, and in a way that they can actually work with. Um, and that, that kind of says that this, this isn't just, you know, a group of loud people. This, this really represents a broader movement of people who are concerned um, and also want to help you find better solutions. And there, there may be some interesting um, kind of hybrid of sort of collective bargaining, you know, on sort of labor activism with consumer activism with other forms of activism and organizing that we could try and experiment with, I think, to, to, to bring more pressure to bear on companies. Because I, I think a lot of times, like, I mean, I know, for instance, in conversations with Facebook, it's sort of like the usual free speech organizations will go to Facebook and say, you know, you're doing this wrong and that wrong and the other wrong. And Facebook's response is, well, you know, we're growing by leaps and bounds, and we're going to have a billion users by the end of the year. And so, you know, most of our users obviously like us, so, you know, go away. <laughs> you know, you're, you're a minority, you know. Um, and which is a response that an authoritarian government tends to have to civil liberties groups too, you know, that, or, you know, Chinese government will say, well, we're growing by leaps and bounds and these people who are complaining are sort of in a minority over here. And, uh, you know, so how do you kind of bring the moral force of, of the user community to bear and say, no, this is something that a lot of people really care about, and also that minority rights really matter, and maybe the most vulnerable people are always going to be a small percentage, but that's what makes, that's what differentiates a democracy from a tyranny of the majority, and, you know, this is why it's important, you know, that the rights, you know, it's hard to get the majority of any kind of country or body to get all riled up about rights a lot of the time, but unless you have rights for everybody, then, you know, things kind of deteriorate, so... How, how to get companies to understand that even if the majority of their users aren't yelling, this is still critical for everybody. Well, I thought it was interesting that it was Google itself that got Google customers riled up over SOPA. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was not something that was a grassroots thing. Mm -hmm. It was something that Google basically lobbied for with yeah. their own people. I, I don't want to, I, I think it's uh, very important to get lots of voices here global sort of uh, <laughs> perspective. I would invite uh, students present to be the first to ask questions. If there are students who have questions, if you just hold up your hand, you'll get first crack. <laughs> and uh, so you all have all your questions answered. And, uh, there's nothing more to, nothing more to say. Huh? Okay, well then I will open it. Yes, Tuan. Uh, I've asked, listen, I've asked uh, Steve Wilson, that is uh, some government they use resource from government public security or they cooperate with the private company at the time they uh, attack DDoS or hack some websites they uh, don't want to support and, uh, that some website they show some 
and also good information and data about government and, and opinion about that. So how we can face with this challenge to protect and to support for website, the support and encourage for democracy in mm -hmm. other countries. Claude is from Vietnam, mm -hmm. which is a yep. similar situation. Good to see you. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I mean, this is a, a real issue, um, and I'll just kind of recap the, the question for people who didn't hear it, that um, a lot of dissident websites or kind of protest websites or civil society websites, non-governmental websites, in, in quite a number of countries are subject to very vicious cyber attacks and hacking attacks. Um, Sometimes, you know, in Russia this happens a great deal, but it also happens around the Middle East. In Syria it's been quite organized and sophisticated, where there will be these hackers, kind of pro-government hackers, that will be kind of directed to attack various dissonant websites or non-governmental websites, protest websites, take them down, um, or steal their data steal their user information and so on and so you get this kind of warfare going on um, in Syria I, I wrote in, in the book in, in Syria the, the government has sort of organized something called the Syrian cyber army that, that goes after online dissent pretty effectively um, taking sites down um, and uh, so yeah the, the there are some programs um, that are devoted, and there's a number of organizations. There's this organization called Tactical Tech, but there's also a number of other organizations, including something called Internews, and um, anyway, a number of organizations that have teams that kind of go around training and providing technical support to nonprofit groups, to to civil society groups in different parts of the world, to to basically help them defend and you know improve their security practices to to be kind of better defended against these attacks. Um, the Open Net Initiative does a lot of research on how these attacks work in different countries and what people are doing to fight back. But it's really hard because if you have a military-grade cyber attack against you know, some NGO website, and the NGO has like three staff members and one IT guy, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, pretty, it's, it's pretty uneven kind of, uh, you know, a situation that's that's really hard to deal with, um, and and that's but that's the situation you're in increasingly facing in a lot of places. That it's it's not just stuff getting censored; it's stuff getting taken down, um, and the importance of independent groups, independent voices, independent websites being able to keep their site up. And then what happens too, and and this is the other concerning thing is that I know some groups that have had so much trouble keeping their websites up that they just end up moving everything to Facebook. And they just say, you know, just go to our Facebook page. We have all our resources on there. But then the question is, then they're quite vulnerable, right? Because, you know, what if they accidentally violate the terms of service and get their account deactivated and then kind of lose all their stuff, you know, or lose their contacts? Um, or what if their account gets hacked, um, you know, and then they're dependent on on the face, you know, or it's, Facebook changes its privacy policies for commercial reasons, or suddenly creates a timeline, and the group, you know, kind of has a power outage, can't go onto the internet for three days during the time that Facebook kind of announced its new policy for whatnot, and so you can change your settings and 
they didn't change their settings in time, and then suddenly all this stuff is exposed that they didn't want exposed, and you know, so it's it's really kind of dangerous to increasingly a lot of groups are becoming more and more reliant on these centralized commercial services because it's so hard to keep your independent website up if it's under constant attack. But these companies aren't thinking sufficiently about the needs and vulnerabilities and concerns of activists who are increasingly relying on their services. And this kind of turns into a really really troubled, troublesome, vicious cycle, actually. Um, and what the solution is, I mean, this is where corporate responsibility becomes increasingly important, because if, if you don't have the, the commercial services accepting responsibility for the you know, civil liberties and the, and the most vulnerable people on their network, um, it's, it's increasingly a problem as people become dependent. You know, and so you've got a lot of activist groups who are turning to Amazon web hosting services, for example. And, but Amazon web hosting services, they'll dump you if you're politically controversial. We saw that with WikiLeaks. You know, there was no charges against WikiLeaks or any trial or anything. They dumped them because Joe Lieberman didn't like them, you know. And, and so, you know, if, if you're an activist group in, in a, you know, Middle Eastern country and you have some members who, you know, maybe the NSA is interested in, you know, do you really want to be hosted on Amazon web services, you know. Uh, it, you know, it, it creates a lot of problems, and, and this is where the vulnerability and rights of global users really become important, and, and it kind of leads to this other issue of if the Internet becomes a place where there's, there's just no, if everybody feels vulnerable and nobody feels like they can trust anything, is it going to just completely lose its value? <laughs> you know, and if it completely loses its value, that's, or it, its value erodes greatly, um, that's ultimately, in the long run, bad for these businesses, which is kind of an argument for, in the long run, sort of a sustainability argument for if these businesses really want the Internet to be maximally valuable to the maximum number of people, there needs to be trust, there needs to be a framework and set of responsibilities for, for people's rights um, and the rights of the most vulnerable people um, on the network, and, and we're just not there. Yes. Um, do you think that, so you've been talking so much about how global, global all of this is, and I've, I don't know if this is something that's possible or would work, but it, what you were just talking about, about a framework for global users' rights, do you think that there's room in the future or that it would be even possible to have some sort of independent organization? Like I was just thinking about The Hague was what I thought of, which you could argue the effectiveness of that, but something where you can regulate and protect, because it's just so interesting how global the internet is, but if you go to one site in one country and you go to the same site in another country, that means entirely different things. And you talk so much about the problems with governments who have trouble developing democracy or don't promote it, and I agree that that needs to be addressed first, but do you think that there is that there could be hope or an answer in some sort of independent global organization that works specifically towards regulation and protection of what has just become yeah. a global Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I have a chapter in the book that kind of deals, deals with that. Um, one of the big questions is where, what kind of organization would that be? 
Mm. Right. And, and Susan knows a lot about this. And there, there are actually some global independent organizations that coordinate very specific functions of the Internet. You know, there's ICANN, like which ICANN. Su Susan was on the board of, I seem to recall, uh, for a while, which is a multi-stakeholder organization of, you know, engineers and companies and civil society groups and kind of governments on the side and, you know, so on that, that kind of coordinates the addressing <coughs> space, of, of domain name space of, of the internet. Um, and there's been a lot of discussion about there, there needs to be a broader sort of global coordinating body to deal with all these issues. But most countries, most governments want this to be a UN function. But then you kind of get into the UN problem, which is that every country gets a vote, and then the Chinese get their coalition together and kind of work to shape the internet in a direction that serves the interests of their governmental power, but may not serve the interests of internet users. Um, and so how do you deal with that? And then, you know, can, is there enough consensus to have a global body that is more multi-stakeholder? Um, right now there's a fight uh, there, there's an effort by a, a number of governments to take the functions that ICANN currently has in a multi-stakeholder context and move that under the United Nations to the International Telecommunications Unit, which people in the civil liberties community think would be a really horrible idea um, because it would basically give authoritarian countries more power over the future structure of the Internet. Um, and so I guess at the moment there's just so much worry that if we centralize it'll end up getting hijacked by interests that are not civil liberty that do not have civil liberties as a priority but have other uh, other interests as a priority that it'll turn into sort of a global law enforcement coordination body or something uh, more than a global civil liberties protecting body so so it's kind of it's it's a tough issue um, and uh, definitely there needs to be more pushback. We need to find a better way to balance against abuse of power by governments and companies on the Internet. But is, is there a centralized way to deal with it, or does it end up having to be a net network decentralized way of kind of civil society pushing back in a more coordinated, organized manner, but kind of globally? What if Jimmy um, Wales decided he wanted to create something like this? Well, I, I don't know if it's an issue of who would run you know, it or I mean, who would I mean, create it. Is, I think the problems would be Wikipedia the same. Wikipedia is the biggest, yeah. it's a gigantic, mm -hmm. yeah. it's in 270 languages, and it is all about the web. Yeah. There's a web culture thing, and it has probably more trust than any, yeah. no, any absolutely. entity out there. And they're a great model for, you know, how how to create a structure of governance and consensus building and they within that particular so, they did. I mean, that they protested. Was a very big and, and actually the, 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 the reason why SOPA was defeated, you know, has as much to do with Wikipedia, which was not a company. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, they kind of had the moral force of the grassroots. Um, and Jimmy Wales couldn't say, oh, you know, Wikipedia is going to oppose SOPA. He had to wait until they built consensus to oppose SOPA mm -hmm. before they could do it. And so it's definitely a model, and, and you see that model of sort of consensus building actually being used in some other organizations. It's just not quite as public, I think. Uh, but I think the other reason why the Wikipedia model of kind of consensus building and problem solving works is, is it's 
focused on some very specific functions and pretty narrow functions. And it doesn't try and kind of solve all problems for all things on the internet, but, but just accomplishing a specific set of tasks around which there's agreement about kind of what the, the ground rules are. And they also have people who kind of, you know, kick people off and, you know, they have kind of enforcement and an authority structure and so on. I'm not sure if it would work if you scale, if you kind of said, okay, then we're going to take Wikipedia structure and then apply it to kind of solving all problems. Well, just more the brand, but, I mean, yeah, in some fact. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, no, I yes. think that's a really good question. Yeah, Alex, hi, Rebecca. Hi. Um, you know, you started with the premise of describing what your message is in the book, which is really convincing us that this is not something that's a natural evolution, that it's going to be something that happens because people make decisions or government makes decisions. It seems that before we, anyone starts talking about who's going to do it or what operation or how it's going to be done, that message seems to have to get out to people because I think a lot of people put the internet into the category of like government whatever and that is there's nothing I can do. Yeah. There's nothing I can do. So it seems to me that's step number one and I'm wondering I if totally you're seeing agree. beyond your book uh -huh. that there are mechanisms for that to well, just you know, get out. Since we're in the Shorenstein Center, I mean, to me, sort of one of the things I've, I'm kind of planning to work on as my next step coming out of the book is exactly that problem number one, which is people not understanding or knowing enough. And that's a journalism problem. Yeah, that's where you come That's a public book. information yeah. problem. That's, that's journalism. We need a lot more journalism on this stuff. Um, and so how to, how to foster and support more journalism on these issues. And I know quite a number of excellent journalists who are kind of working on these types of stories quite a lot. But, you know, I, I, I think they tend to be read by a very specialized community. And so how to get these stories out to broader, broader public. Um, and, and that's actually one of, because I totally agree with you, until people kind of start to understand that you know, things are the way they are for very specific reasons, and they're actually levers that we have power to pull yeah. that can ha that can make a difference. Um, it is going to be hard, and and so yeah. And I, if anybody feels like in the future, kind of being in touch with me about thoughts about how to build and support more journalism specifically on these issues, I'd, I'd love to have that conversation. We're that's what interested, I can about. tell you that. Yeah. Can, can, can I just follow up for one second, Alex, just one moment? Okay, go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm I'll sorry. talk to Rebecca. Oh, sorry. So let's say you're Sheryl Sandberg and you're faced with some of these, these, these problems that you talked about, like anonymity, where you, you know, it, it hurts dissidents, but it protects the security of users. How would you address that? Yeah. Well, one thing I really wish Facebook would do is join an organization that I was involved with founding called the Global Network Initiative, which is trying to get companies to publicly make a commitment on free expression and human rights standards, um, and agree to be held accountable, and also agree to work with human rights groups on figuring out solutions, um, agree to work with socially responsible investors do they not meet and academics. Do they, they do kind of on an ad hoc way, uh, but not in a systematic way. I mean, it's, it's been more that, you know, human rights groups contact Facebook when dissidents they know get their accounts deactivated. I mean, I got an email from somebody in Hong Kong just yesterday about somebody who works for Radio Free Asia whose account got deactivated 
for reasons that were totally unclear, um, except that they had posted some photos critical of the newly elected chief, chief executive of Hong Kong. Um, so God knows what was going on, but they have no way of kind of communicating. And, and there's sort of a very ad hoc, you know, human rights groups kind of call up people they know at Facebook and say, what the heck's going on here? Um, it would be better if, if Facebook made a more systematic commitment to, you know, conducting human rights due diligence on their processes, you know, and kind of really gaming through, okay, our processes and procedures and policies, you know, how does that play out with the most vulnerable, politically vulnerable users on our network, you know, and, and work with human rights groups who really understand what the challenges that people out there face to really think through in advance the implications of, of how they're putting their procedures together. And, you know, uh, again, it's, it's sort of a long-term process, but if they would at least make a public commitment um, and agree that they don't have all the answers, that they're not just God's gift to humanity, you know, just by existing, and that, yes, they've done, you know, they've, they've created something that's, you know, a lot of people find really useful and quite empowering, but, again, they're, they're, they're not the second coming of, you know, JHC, you know, they're, they're, you know, <laughs> what? They, you know, that, you know, they, they're capable of doing evil and they need to recognize that and they need to make concerted efforts to, to be part of, a positive part of an ecosystem that, that supports the kind of world we want to have. And, and so far they're just, you know, they're being really arrogant. I want to give uh, both Susan and Mika a chance to ask a question. Sure. Well, it's great you're here. Thank you. You're so kind to mention us in your presentation. It's terrific. Um, so one of the reasons that the uh, environmental movement took off was because we suddenly had a visual for the first time of Earth from space. And yeah. it's fragile and horrible and a blue boy. Yeah. So we don't have that for the <coughs> internet. And I have spent years of my life trying to figure out what that visual might be that would grab people's imaginations. I started something called One Web Day, mm -hmm. Earth Day for the Internet, with, with this sort of idea. Yeah. Um, so let's work on that. Let's something that would grab people, yeah. like the Triangle Shirtwaist Fire we've got, <laughs> and the labor movement, we've got these terrible pictures of self-immolating monks through the Tibet crisis. What do we have? Maybe we it's the blackout of Wikipedia yeah. that really grabs people, makes it brings this home in a human way to them, because otherwise it's always a distant mm -hmm. story. Yeah. And the other part is the grasp, making this an electable issue in every democratic exactly. nation uh, has obviously got to be the point and in every district of every representative. Yeah. But we haven't figured out how to do that either. Yeah, and one of the reasons, I guess, is that, you know, it's not a, par it's not a clearly partisan issue. No. You know, and there are Republicans and Democrats that are doing well and doing really horribly on these issues, you know, across the board. And, and so, you know, it makes it hard for voters, you know, when one particular candidate is really great on internet civil liberties and really horrible kind of on everything else, which is sort of how I feel about Ron Paul, for instance, yeah. you know. Um, you know, so I'm not going to vote for him, right? I'm not going to reward him, you know, and, and I'm really upset about Obama and surveillance and a whole bunch of, of things going on, but I'm going to vote for him because I'm so appalled and, you know, everything else on the other side. And, and so I'm, you know, at myself as a voter, I don't have a good way of holding accountable my elected representatives on these internet issues, and mm -hmm. I, I wish there was a better way. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. Hey, Rebecca, I apologize for getting too late. No, I um, you, you, you look a little sick. I have something going on. Um, but uh, uh, my question was uh, to bring it back to uh, the role of the media and journalists, and I'm glad you mentioned politicians, too. Um, you know, I'm uh, more and more disturbed every day as I see uh, Facebook and Google and some of these other platform companies uh, stepping into partnership roles with media companies, right? So we've had these debates yeah. where Facebook's a partner, or Google is a partner. Uh, we have the president doing a Facebook town hall. Um, and so I'm wondering if, we, while this is a bad trend, uh, it doesn't open up a leverage point, which is uh, you maybe can't get the companies to care, but politicians are sensitive to uh, this appearance issue. Um, should they be getting in bed with Facebook and so on. So how do we get reporters uh, more sensitized to asking these questions about mm -hmm. the relationship and whether um, it's appropriate yeah. uh, to have it? You know, would uh, CNN do a debate with Walmart? Um, yeah, exactly. No, obviously no. not, even yeah. though Walmart's everywhere too. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, and yet, you know, see, them doing it with Facebook or, or Google is just taken as uh, gravy for everybody. Yeah. Uh, similarly, elected officials privileging Facebook. Um, I mean, Boehner now has a uh, thing where if you want to co-sponsor a bill with him, socially, uh, you have to do it through Facebook. Which yeah. means if you don't want to use Facebook, you can't co-sponsor with him, yeah. number one. Number two, we don't know what the data right. is that he or Facebook is collecting. collecting. Yeah. So I think there are all sorts of really oh, good yeah. questions to ask here, but can we get the media to ask about it? How do we make politicians more sensitive that, you know, and then I think the companies will respond, right? When, when uh, what's his name, our congressman uh, lambasted uh, Yahoo over the human rights issue. Yeah, Lantos. Lantos. Called, called them moral pygmies. He got their attention. <laughs> yeah, he sure did. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, we, you know, it keeps coming back to journalism. Um, and yeah, I mean, another story was, I, I remember seeing a story about uh, the Obama campaign's re-election strategy relying very heavily on Facebook yeah. and Facebook data. And, and again, not seeing the question being asked in that story, that, that was kind of obvious to me about, you know, that's kind of creepy. <laughs> um, I, I wonder if, you, you know, back, back in the day, you know, there was this loose fellowship created because there was concern that American journalists were doing a lousy job covering Asia and that they needed to be better educated, and sort of a fellowship was created. And a number of fellowships were created to take journalists out to Asia and you know, kind of learn more about the issues and then go back to their newsrooms. Maybe there needs to be more of that type of thing, you know, that, that you guys, that kind of role that you guys can play and, and other institutions can play to sort of have, you know, bring journalists out of their newsroom for half a year or a year and you know, go spend time talking to people with more expertise, learning about the issues so that they can go back and start asking those, these questions, you know, even if they're not. <laughs> 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 <laughs>